You're listening to JSCN, radio for the Jewish small communities. Welcome, I'm Ed Horwich and this is Jewish Talk, the podcast for anybody interested in Jewish culture and Jewish life. Today, I want to tell you about a time three or four years ago when I helped as a new project was being set up. A project called My Voice, turning the stories of Holocaust survivors and refugees into books which could be archived and passed on down through the generations, so the stories can continue to be told. But the stories aren't just the experiences of suffering either in the camps or as refugees fleeing the oppression, but they're also the stories of rebuilding lives, building a future, building families and renewing after all those experiences. Two and a half years later, I recorded as Doric Novak, the director of Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Centre in Jerusalem, visited Manchester and spoke about Holocaust education and encountering the My Voice project for herself. But first, a few days ago, I returned to see the project as it's working today and to speak with Louise and Joyce in the My Voice office at the Federation of Jewish Services in Manchester, better known as the Fed. And that's where our story begins. Thank you so much for having me in the My Voice office today. Louise, Joyce, you are both intimately involved in this project. Joyce, you were there earlier on when it started. In a couple of words, what is the project? It's um, a project that validates people's life stories, but it's specifically around Holocaust survivors and refugees, and it's looking at their whole lives. It's um, not the same as testimony projects that we hear of, for example, the Spielberg testimony project. It, this is about looking back at the life that, that people had before the Shoah, their communities, uh, how they grew up with their families in their villages or their towns, wherever they came from. So it's getting the detail, helping them reach back into those memories and be able to pass them on to their families and to future generations. And if they want to cover their experiences in the Shoah, they can do, not all want to. And then what it's doing, it's validating the lives that they went on to build in the community here in the UK. How basically they rose from the ashes and how they built businesses, became contributors to their communities and built positive lives out of the most horrendous experiences. I won't be surprised to know that many of the survivors for years didn't, didn't share their stories. When they finally decide that they are willing to share their stories with others, they had to be prepared for that in order to take themselves as well as the listener, as we call it, safely in and safely out. Just today I, heard, I was at the Fed and I heard about this beautiful, beautiful, amazing project, My Voice, that's the name, and it is about volunteers listening to Holocaust survivors at the Feds, taking, writing down their stories and publish a book that tells a story, so the story will be there forever. And one of the principles of this beautiful, beautiful project here in Manchester is to create a safe environment, you know, where a survivor can share his story without being overwhelmed.
There will be those amongst the group of people taking part who will be themselves taking part in Holocaust education, but there's a, there's a lot of people who have remained silent. Why and is that? I think sometimes that's a coping mechanism um, or not wanting to share the stories of the horror with their families and upset them maybe it's protectiveness but what happens is that as people get older mm -hmm, that's true. when they feel that they've got to tell the story that the that time's running out yeah. i mean there's that sense of urgency generally with the whole project it's people feel it personally but we feel and it they feel yeah they just feel ready once a year or twice a year at the shim at the school was a survivor seminar you might wonder why survivors need a seminar? What do they need a seminar for? So this is the main purpose of the survivor seminar. Survivors that want to go through a seminar to prepare themselves, to be able to tell the stories, are coming to this seminar. And I attended this seminar. And the first session, the, the, the facilitator asked the participant, there were about 20 people in the room, to, to introduce themselves. But there was one rule, not mentioning the Holocaust. You might think that it should be quite easy. You know, most of their life they were not in the Holocaust, because they were elderly people and they were... But they found it very difficult. Maybe because, you know, they were pre-occupied the weeks before this seminar with thinking about the Holocaust, about what they went through, how they will tell the story, how they will share the story. So they found it quite difficult. But then they, they took some time, they were thinking, and then everyone stood up and presented himself the name, by name, and someone presented themselves through their profession, some people presented themselves through their hobbies, through their families, through things they like to read, all kinds of... And then Tamara turns arrived. And Tamara stood up, you know, she was a very thin, beautiful lady. And she said, my name is Tamara, and I am a human being. Well, people were thinking, she is trying to be smart. You know, she's kind of smarty woman, but it was the beginning. They were all polite, they listened, no one said a word. Three days later, on the board, there was a question. How did you survive? And everyone was asked to write a short paragraph about his survival, one word, who survived you, and then they told their story. And then Tamara's turn arrived again, and Tamara, shared her story. Tamara said, I was a three years old baby in Warsaw. My parents were sent by their families to Warsaw from Venus for business purposes. They were the representative of the family there. And Tamara was three years old. At that year, the father was taken to the Polish army somehow, and Tamara and her mother were left alone. And then rumors start crawling in that the Germans are approaching and the Germans are coming and the Germans... So my mother, said Tamara, decided we are not staying there. We are going back to the family in Vilnius. My doctor, said Tamara, told my mother that the baby will not survive the way. But my mother is a 20 years old girl, very persistent. I mean, she knew her way, she didn't listen to anyone. She took me, she took a small bag, and we started our way to the east. You know, Europe was a mess at that time. People were trying to, you know, to run from the west to the east, from the east to the west, and Tamara and her mother were caught by German troops 
that were located in the middle of the way, just capturing people that were just wandering around. And they were put in, in contemporary camp on the way. They stayed there for a few months. One day, said Tamara, we were sitting in our, cab in our cabin, and my mother looked through the windows, and she saw German soldiers beating young Jewish boys that were staying in this camp. You know, all, all were prisoners there. Well, first of all, you know, for us, you know, it reminds, immediately it rings the bell. German soldiers beating Jewish kids. Well, her mother, my mother said Tamara, didn't hesitate for a minute. She wore her best dress, she put a hat on her head, she went out, and she turned to the soldiers and she asked, and she asked them, excuse me, what are you doing? And my mother spoke Hochdeutsch, very high-level Deutsch, German. You know, the soldiers stopped beating, and the, the officer asked her, and excuse me, who are you? And Tamara stopped for a minute, and she said, and my mother looked at him, and she said, I am a human being. At that moment, you know, the beating stops. The, the officer dismissed the soldiers. The children ran away, and they stayed there and started talking to Tamara's mother. You know, we find a young, young woman speaking very good Deutsch, German. And they start, and from that moment onward, this officer become their protégé. He made sure that they would have enough food. He made sure that if there would, there would be any, any you know, people who were collected to be sent somewhere, they would be safe. And for a few months, they were protected by this German officer. After that, somehow they succeed to leave the camp. They reached Siberia, where they spent the rest of the war, until the, the war ended. And then they came to Israel. The father never came back. And Tamara was grown, grown up in Israel, grew up in Israel. She had a family. And now she's willing to tell her story. When she finished her story, there was silence. And one, but one of the, it was the third day, so they were not as polite as they were at the beginning, one of the participants looked at her and said, well, you told us a very beautiful story, but this is not your story. This is your mother's story. Tamara looked at him, very, very quiet. She opened her arm like that. She said, it's in my vein. It's in my blood. There was a silence. And I can tell you that for me, what Tamara says is like a send message to me. That's what we're seeking, that the story of the Holocaust, that being a human being, will be in the veins, in the blood of everyone. <coughs> to be a human being. Being a human being saved Tamara and her mother. But still, it's a very big question. What does it mean to be a human being? And not long ago, I heard from Dr. David Zilberkland, is the head of the, is the, of the study that we publish at Yad Vashem, the research that we publish three times a year. He told me one of the memoirs he read, one story of Sulik. Sulik was an orphan in um, Otsvok which is next, not far from Warsaw. 
And uh, in his memoir, he writes his own story that him and his sister and his mother were in the ghetto. And then there was a deportation, and they were all the Jews were called to be to come. The father was taken a few months before that, and uh, he was 11. His sister was 13. The mother decided she is not going to be deported, and while they were, you know, walking toward the place where they should should be should should, should reach. She, she held her two kids and she said, let's run to the forest. And she started running with them. As they were running, suddenly she saw that two German policemen, not, not policemen, the SS, were chasing them. So she told the kids, keep on running. She turned backwards and she crashed into the hands of the people chasing them to be beaten to death. But the children reached the forest. And... Uh, they walked around. Somehow, the sister, she was 13, she joined the partisan. But Srulik, he, he was too young. He was walking around, and he was looking for shelter. And he found a shelter, you wouldn't guess where. In a dog house, in one of the farms, not far from the... And the dog let him in. And the dog made sure that whenever the, the farmer gave food to the, to, the, to the dog, the dog made sure that the boy will eat first. And in the cold nights, the dog warmed him. And when German or policemen were walking by, the dog used to bark and, you know, scare them away. And he said, he writes, that the dog showed human values that no human being presented to him for many, many long months at that time. So this value of being a human being was presented, it was a very simple one, no words. Just taking care of the other was presented by this dog. When I heard this story, it rings a bell. So I went back to Emmanuel Levinas. Emmanuel Levinas, a French philosopher, memoirs. And there, he writes a very interesting story. He was captured, he was, he was fighting with the French army, and he was captured as a prisoner of war uh, by the German, and there were a group of French, French soldiers, and he writes down in his memoir that the uniform, you know, kept him from being identified as a Jew, he was identified as a soldier, and he was treated very badly, but as a soldier, but as a soldier, not as a Jew. And they were taken to a hard labor camp. They worked very hard. He said, we lost every characteristic of our human face. You know, we used to walk, he said, we used to walk through the village from our camp to the, well, to the, to the wood where we did our labor. And no one looks at us like human beings. We were, you know, people in the villages. We just walk through, they see us like a strange gray creature no one saw our laughter, our pain, our anger, our anguish. I mean, we were not seen as human beings. But one day, when we came back from our working day, we were tired, we were sick, we were hungry. There was a dog that joined us. I don't know how this dog survived, he writes, but somehow he sneaked into our camp. And for a few months, he was with us. 
We call him, he writes, we called him Bobby, like a noble dog should be called. That's how he writes. And the only creature on earth that was happy to see them when they come back from work, that they, when they woke up in the morning, was this dog. He definitely saw our human spirit. The only one that, saw, that looked at us as human beings at that moment was this Bobby, this dog. And we all kept him as a precious present that we got because it reminds us what we are, that we might forget, and humanity forgot at that moment. So this human quality, which is not necessarily connected to words, that's what we are searching. And, you know, we all read Maslow, and we know, you know, the, the, the psychology is saying that until we fulfill our basic needs, we will not reach higher level values and all that. When you look at people during the Holocaust, you would see that people that didn't have anything needed from the basic needs will still present human values here and there. So why the Holocaust is so, is so important? Why it is important to learn from it? There are plenty of reasons, and I got beautiful, beautiful answers from the children. I asked them this question, why should we remember? There are Jewish reasons to remember, there are universal human reasons to remember, and then I asked what to remember. But I think the Holocaust presents, it challenges us. Why does it challenge us? Because the Holocaust presents the collapse of one of the most basic assumptions of humanity at the end of the 19th century. There was an assumption. The assumption said, said that modernity, enlightenment, education, they all bring with them higher moral level. That was the assumption. You know, and people went to universities and culture developed and evolved. But the Holocaust, with the Holocaust collapsed the idea and the notion and the assumption that it's necessarily connected everywhere. Unfortunately, since 1945, we see it again and again and again. And, you know, one of the kids today asked me, so what can be done in order to prevent it? And I said, one of the things is never giving up. Never giving up. Keep on the work we are doing. Do it the hard work. Do it again and again. So it is for us to keep on telling the story. And we do it. It's a time in their life clicks with them. Previously they've been very busy with work, with family, and that is what they're focused on. And then all of a sudden they're in their 80s and 90s and they've got time. And when we come along and we explain what we do and how we do it, and we show them the box and they speak to other survivors maybe that have told their story via us, um, they feel safe and um, they feel that we're, we're going to do their story justice and, you know, we involve them. It's, it's led by them, it's led by the volunteers and, and that's, why, that's why they feel so secure um, with us. And, and why it's called My Voice. Exactly, exactly. We, never change, we don't change anything. It's completely led by them. So... This telling of uh, their stories, maybe this is the first time they've actually ever told their story. Yes. Well, it, it would have been told in snippets, but hasn't told it in its full, full length. 
how they were living, living a completely normal life mm-hmm. before the Holocaust happened. And often and very happy Very lives. happy. Um, it's all about family. Yeah. It's all about Yiddishkeit. Yeah. And then the, the horrors of the Holocaust, it all, all of a sudden just seems to happen. It's not something that, for a child... They didn't. They didn't know what was coming up. That anybody really understood it, but it, it just such a shock, especially to the stories that we've got because they were children. So they were so, shielded from probably or, what was going and on. And all their memories is of a happy, happy childhood. Right. Um, and it's it's the shock of everything afterwards. That's that's so, so horrifying, and that that they're telling it from a child's perspective is unbelievable, really. Huh. Have you come into contact with any of the survivors? Yes, of, of course. I mean, we we always um, as the projects leader and the everyone involved in the project we always go and see the survivors first and we talk to them about the project we explain to them that we're going to be recording their testimony we you know they agree to that and um, because it's so important where you know we're taking this um it's a put in our archives to use for educational purposes so we always meet them first and we include them in everything they're part of the fed we're a social care organization we look after them as clients as well and um, so we're always in contact with them and um, to make sure that they're um, secure from the my voice side of things when we're introducing them to their volunteer we match them with a befriender the the right befriender that we feel um, that they'll um, connect with um, to trust them to be able to tell them their story and often they become best of friends which is amazing <laughs> and to be able to, to, to elicit their, their life story and get those, those little intimate details that you wouldn't normally get from a historical perspective I think that um, what people don't realise is how long the process is. That yeah. often um, the information, the stories are gathered piecemeal over weeks, months, yeah. even up to a year. So how do you gather them? Through conversation. Through co- yeah, yeah, exactly. Through and the friendship, through the befriending. Befriender. We call it befriending. We don't call them interviewers, um, even though that's what they're essentially doing. Um, it's less of a chat. It is an interview, but they feel safe with that person and, you know, they will have their little bit of chit-chat, of course. And, we, were, you know, when we get the um, transcripts back, everything, the, the interviews are recorded and then um, they're transcribed and we create the books from the transcripts. So, obviously, any additional details that are not relevant, we take out and everything to do which colours their, their life story, we include. And that could be information about their childhood, any, any lovely stories... And up until now, about their own grandchildren's, you know, story about that about their life, and um, so that makes it a complete life story because, you know, they've like you said, risen from the ashes yeah. and have created these beautiful families, and that is so important, and that's the message that they're trying to say: look, we've got these families, we've we've survived, and we're building a life for ourselves, which is incredible. So. It sounds like there's a lot of people involved in actually getting hold of these stories because you're talking yeah. about, first of all, the befriender who, yeah. who records the story mm-hmm. and then they get transcribed, so that's probably somebody else. Yeah, so we, we're lucky because we've got um, amazing volunteers and they're so skilled and we have people who can do their own transcribing. From there we have editors who work for us just solely, on the, just solely edit the books from the transcripts because you can imagine reams of papers, hundreds and hundreds of, of pay, uh, pieces of paper um, from the transcripts and that gets edited down, all within their words, but just to shape it into into a book, and that requires you know another another skill set. And these editors are volunteers. They're as well. all volunteers. All volunteers. We've got. Do they have to be trained? Yes, we do. We do the training. We have a volunteer editor who is highly experienced and has written um, courses in journalism, um, and she also does training for us as well to train other editors. And there are editors who have been journalists in the past, so they you know have their own 
their own skill set. And anyone who wants to come on board as an editor, we can train them. We won't say no, we will always try and fit their skill set within the project. As well as the sort of the written word, you also have the design of the books. And yeah, in my team, we have two people who volunteer their time. And we have Robert, who is our communications officer, but who's also a photographer. Um, That's a big hobby of his. And he does um, some of your photography. um, And we also have Hannah, who's our designer. And she does the layout of the books. Yes, yeah, she, she designs the books um, yeah. for us, which is we're and so she's, lucky. These are employees of the Fed who are doing it on top of their normal as, as, volunteers, as volunteers for the project. So there's a lot of people bringing in some amazing skills. Yeah. I was thinking, who does the proofreading? Is that so another we person? Have, yeah, so then we've got about maybe 10 people who signed up to do the proofreading, and at least Four of those people work here as well, so Rochelle right. and Dahlia um, also do proofreading for us, and they um, they work here. So, so yeah, it's amazing um, how many people we have. We've got about seven, 47 volunteers now on the project, probably close, coming up to close to 50 as people. But, no, but working, across the, working across the spread of books, not yeah. all on one book. No, of course not. I mean, at the, at the moment, um, so we are about to produce isn't there's an eighteenth book that's going into production um this week. I was gonna say how, how many books? Yeah. So eighteen books. It, yeah. And then um we're working on um another eleven at the same time. So <laughs> um, we're producing all, another eleven another fifty percent. Yeah. Right. And then we're also in the process of going out to see another five or six survivors to get their life stories recorded. So um, let's just Let's just talk a little bit more about the the book itself Mm -hmm. and then maybe we can come back to some of the stories that are in the books Mm -hmm. or the people who have um, participated. What is this book? What does it look like? Are people going to find it on the shelves in WH Smith? Waterstones. <laughs> What's the purpose Def, of the book? Yeah. The purpose of telling the story we heard is about getting those uh, people's stories, their lives, their memories, whilst we still can, mm-hmm. like Joyce said. We had a lady who lived at Heathlands Village called Margit. Yeah. Uh, it was a fabulous painter. And she approached Juliet Pierce, who heads up the volunteer team, volunteer services at the Fed. And I can't remember exact words, but it was basically... You must tell my story. You must tell my story. And those words really resonated with Juliet. Mm -hmm. She felt an enormous responsibility. And that was really the seed. I mean, even even prior... That was the seed to this exact project. Prior to that, Juliet and I had spoken years and years ago about the need, as people got older, to be able to produce a life story book that would aid communication for people maybe who are becoming confused, Mm -hmm. uh, to aid communication with their families when they visit them and the people that are looking after them. That's broader. That's around maybe dementia care and communication. Then with, with Margit's word, it became more specific. Then it became about telling the story of survivors and refugees before time ran out. Mm -hmm. A time running out could mean before they pass away or or before, as people nowadays are living so much longer, but often with dementia, before they became um, sort of separated from those memories Mm -hmm. and couldn't actually pass them on. Yeah. Yeah. But exactly. so the original purpose was in a nutshell for fa- for themselves yeah. and for mm-hmm. their families. Yeah. But interest in the project has really grown yeah, and it's been four years, hasn't it, now? It, so you were saying about 
the books that had already been produced. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important to mention that there's a set of the first the first set of books, or is it maybe or, two now? Yeah, that two, have yeah. been are archived at Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem. Yeah. Going back to your question, so the purpose of the books are for very much live story books for the survivor, for their families. And then on the back of that, we've had so much interest on the educational side. Mm. They've been archived at Yad Vashem, so obviously anyone can read it there. Yad Vashem is the International uh, Centre for Holocaust Education. Mm. It's obviously a museum and archives. And, and as you alluded to, they do a lot of educational work around Holocaust. It's not just helping ideas around the, the Holocaust, or some people call it the Shoah, that happened to the Jews, but it's also relevant to, to other genocides absolutely. as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's uh, because one message um, that these books uh, very clearly um, give over is that people survive, there is hope, and people go on and build successful lives. And that's what they mm -hmm. celebrate that. Mm -hmm. And it really, it's, it's a message that's, as you say, it's very relevant. It's relevant on a broader basis. And we've got so many different skill sets. We'd always like to replicate that, like you said, within within other refugee communities. And if they were able to do the same thing with their life stories, then you know, then it you know really sparks something unbelievable. And mm -hmm. um, to be able to, to record history in that way that isn't just on an academic point of view, yeah. it helps students, you know, really really bring it to life and to show them that these were normal people and it can happen, mm -hmm. and we don't want it to ever happen again. I think it makes history relatable, doesn't yeah. it, in a way that facts and statistics don't. If you give a personal story about somebody's life who survived and can talk about their parents who died, their siblings, that you know, uh, they were the one, they were one of maybe 20 in their family and they are the only one that survived, people can relate to that. Then it gets home, then, it, then you're really educating. We've talked about the beginnings of the project, mm. how somebody really wanted their story recorded, mm -hmm. and it was for them and their family, and now it's gone on to be a much bigger thing. Mm. It's, it's now become something which will go into archives and be there as the real voice of people who, who may have stayed silent for years but finally told their story. How do their families feel about this? One of the survivors, um, her, her grandson, um, actually said, you know, I knew my grandma's story before, beforehand, but once I read the book, I can now hear her voice and that will be with me forever. And she's so proud of that and she just thinks that's, that's amazing that he will always be able to hear her voice. We've had circumstances where someone has um, had everything transcribed and the book's been reaching production and they've passed away before we had a lady we couldn't obviously present the book to her but we presented it to her daughter on her behalf and that was so meaningful that was a lovely thing and to moving be, so moving so moving and mm. um, so you know you asked what does it mean to the families and an enormous amount yeah yeah an enormous amount, and even huge pride in it. Mm, yeah, when we, gave, when we gave the box over to Yad Vashem and all the families were there, you could, you could feel the sense of pride in the room yeah. and the emotion, and that you said the ones who were not there anymore had passed away. They'd seen the books. One hand had got to the point where they'd seen it in the final, final design draft, but not the actual product, and the other one had, thank God, seen the book. But um, for them to be able to sign on their parents' behalf is just amazing, and that they know that it will, it will live on in Yad Vashem. 
and they got very emotional about that as well. Sure. So you've published 18 books, there's 11 more on the cards, mm-hmm. waiting in the works, at a point in time when there are fewer and fewer survivors and refugees. What happens next? <laughs> We're still finding them, they're still yeah. coming forward, we're still um, planning, we'll, we'll keep going as long as they're, they're alive. I don't think we've had anybody regret going no, through the process. Not. It's been difficult. It's going to be a difficult process, but definitely not regret it. I think afterwards... They're very happy with their books. Yeah. I think that oh, the word I used at the beginning was validation. Imagine somebody taking the time to listen to you and your life and, and to give it value and say it's important because that's what the process does. And then to put it into book form that it does an enormous amount for people. So, when the war ended, again, there were choices to be made, what to do. And apparently, most of the survivors, as Abakovna, one of the most well-known survivor, partisan in Israel, and he said, no, nobody would, would be surprised if the survivors would choose right after the Holocaust to, to become vengeful, to become hateful, to hate the world. But no, they didn't do that. You wouldn't believe what happens there. People fell in love, they create new, new families, they have babies, so many babies. You don't bring babies to the world you don't believe in. And, uh, you know, Elie Wiesel said it beautifully. He said, we have proved that they didn't lose faith in the world and in God. By their action, not by speaking much, by their action. And they built communities, and they built families, and they become productive people in community. And again, this is a beautiful, amazing lesson. They didn't become bitter. 2002, there were thousands of Holocaust survivors gathered and the main message they sent was a message of hope, of reconciliation, of believing in human beings, in mankind, is the need to educate, to educate. So it is for us to keep on telling the story. And we do it. Everyone here that know Holocaust survivor, every Holocaust survivor here, that tells his story, that decide to tell the story. He's doing what Elie said. Turns us to be the messengers of the messengers. Because the first messengers are the survivors. But we become their messengers. And the message should be heard clear and loud. The great poet, Jewish poet, Shaul Shonichovsky. Kyodeni mamin ba'adam. For I still believe in mankind and in its spirit, strong and bold. I do believe. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about the My Voice project, either because you want to record a story or you want to volunteer, 
you can just Google My Voice The Fed and you should get to the right page. Or you can phone them 0161 772 4800. And if you'd like to know more about Yad Vashem, their archives and educational program, or you're interested in visiting the Yad Vashem Center in Jerusalem, just go to their website, yadvashem.org. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast or any of the podcasts I've done in the series, then please do give them five stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you can, please leave a nice comment or a positive review because that really helps other people to find us. Believe me, it really does. And I would be most grateful. I'm Ed Horwich, and you've been listening to Jewish Talk, the podcast for anybody interested in Jewish culture and Jewish life.